Chapter 3, Part 2 One day, Roy and a few others were all relaxing in the late afternoon, when Lucy took off her bikini top and walked around topless. I thought that was a bit much and I didn't say anything, but never saw her again after that. Trina asked me to be her maid of honour. The dress and the shoes were going to cost me around $400. In 1983, this was way out of my league, but I wanted to make her happy and was too embarrassed to let her know that I couldn't afford it. So I said I would. My only income was a single parent's pension and I was struggling to pay my bills at the time. I met Steve and May, a young couple who lived on the island. May was born in Malaysia and had a son, Mark, who was three years old. Steve's mum owned a property on the island and May and Steve rented a home not far from our house. Steve used heroin recreationally and I would buy small amounts from him every now and then. He injected it, but I snorted it. The thought of using the needle disgusted me. Kate rang one afternoon to tell me that $10,000 in cash had been stolen from their home. She asked me how I was managing to live, and I said, I'm not. It hurt me a lot that they could think that I had stolen it. Months later, Kate told me that they found out a friend of hers had stolen the money and bought herself a new car with it. Francis would come to visit me every fortnight or so, and I would travel to the markets to see him there too. He became my addiction, and the more I tried to shake off the urge to see him, the more I wanted to. Francis was a good artist, and he played the guitar. He worked hard and partied harder. We used a lot of drugs and alcohol, and the mix of drugs began to affect my moods and judgment a lot. I was losing the little sense of self that I had. After he visited us one afternoon, he left a gram of cocaine with me to mine for him. I didn't like cocaine and rarely used it, so I hid it under James's mattress. After a while, I walked into his room, where he had been playing with Lego, and saw it all rubbed into the carpet near his bed. James had found the packet, opened it, and spilled it everywhere. All I could think about was that it cost $300 and was now gone, and how... Was I ever going to pay Francis for it? I yelled and screamed at poor little James who had no idea what was going on. When I explained to Francis what had happened, he just laughed and didn't seem to mind at all. Steve offered to sell me a rifle and told me it was stolen, so I bought it for $80. It was not loaded, and I put it on top of my wardrobe in my bedroom. Fear and paranoia had entered my mind, and I started to believe that I had to protect little James and myself alone. Trina got married. It was the first church wedding that I had ever attended. The reception was on a riverboat cruiser along the Hawkesbury River, and afterwards all of us young ones went back to Trina and John's home on the mainland at Brooklyn to party some more. But everybody drank too much, and I had changed out of my dress into a loose pink lace top, and as I walked past John, Trina's husband, he put his hands up my top. That shocked me sober. Lacey, the other bridesmaid, and I were staying overnight with them, but I felt very bad about what John had done. He had just married my best friend, and after that I didn't see Trina much anymore. I kept it to myself and felt very ashamed. Harry and Willow lived on the island too. They were in their late 20s, and Harry owned and operated the taxi boat service, and Willow worked part-time as an actress. They were very much in love and spent most of their days on Harry's green yacht. 
that was anchored just off the island. They had to get together one night in their home, so I went along. But they put on a soft porn movie, and this was not my scene. So I got up and left. I had drunk a bit of rum for the first time, so I decided to go for a walk to the top of the island to try and clear my head a bit. The sun was setting and I was halfway up the little pathway with Tim, who worked on the cruises, popped up out of nowhere. He was 45 years old and had a beautiful girlfriend, Eliza, who lived on the island too. He was drunk and within a few seconds he grabbed me and pushed me into a stinging metal bush. I fought to get him off me and finally mumbled incoherently and I got myself free and then I ran all the way back to my house. That incident was the straw that broke the camel's back for me and I lost the little respect for men that I had at that point. The following morning I woke up with welts all over my arms and legs from the nettle bush. My head throbbed from the cheap rum and I never drank rum again or went for walks by myself. I did not speak to anyone about what had happened because I didn't want to cause trouble for Eliza as I liked her a lot and she was my next door neighbour. I still had a couple of months left on my lease that was very short of cash. After Mum, after Dad had died, Mum, Mary and Bernadette told me that he had left $2,000 in his will to be used by anyone in the family who needed it for an emergency. So I asked them if I could use it and that I would repay it. They refused and that left me feeling worthless and of no value. They told me to ask Andy, so I did, and he loaned me $1,000. Mum and my sisters liked him a lot and kept in regular contact with him after we had split up. He was so generous and still enjoyed hanging out with little James, who loved seeing him and spending time with him. They had a lot of fun together. With the money, I paid off my debt to Francis for the drugs he had left with me and paid the rent until the lease ran out. It was all getting too weird on the island anyway. I tried to work part-time at the fish and chip shop on the mainland at Brooklyn, but I couldn't focus long enough to put an order together. So I left after a couple of weeks there. Then someone who must have thought that they were, that there were dope plants in my backyard ripped out the lettuce that I had planted. Then I found out that a young guy who lived on the other side of the island had raped a couple of the young women and had attempted to rape others too. One night I went for a drive with Jim and Kate in their combi van I was sitting all the way in the back when John drove straight through a stop sign at an intersection. We were a bit startled and had smoked a couple of joints beforehand and even though they both commented about it, I barely noticed. After driving for another 10 minutes, Jim stopped the van in the middle of nowhere and Kate asked him what he was doing. He suggested that we should have a threesome. Poor Kate, I felt humiliated for her and sat there frozen. I was numb and all I could say was no. After a painful silence, he drove us back home as though nothing had happened. Francis decided to stay overnight on the island and booked Harry to pick him up at four the next morning to take him to the mainland so he could drive to work. But Harry slept in and Francis woke up an hour and a half later and freaked out. I couldn't understand what all the fuss was about or how important it was for him to be there as the trading started. Francis's night vision was terrible. We had to walk in a line along the waterfront from the ferry wharf to reach our home, along rocks. And he always told me to slow down because he couldn't see where he was going. James and I were used to walking by the moonlight and stars only, and I didn't believe him, and we laughed as we just kept walking along. 
out of the blue one evening, I decided to leave everything and in my mind, I wanted to become a lay missionary and go to Africa. I knew nothing about Africa except that the people there were in dire need of help. After making inquiries over the phone, everything sounded good to go. Just before I hung up, I told the lady that I had a three-year-old son and then she said that it was impossible to take him as no children were allowed to go on missions. I was sad after that, but I gave away my few possessions. Then Andy helped us move off the island to Seven Hills, where I had been accepted as a living nanny. My, wor- my role was to look after two school-aged children, a boy and a girl who were very well behaved. Their dad had full custody and worked from his study at home. My memory of Seven Hills is of a dry, trailer suburb way out west, like Green Valley where I had grown up. There was nothing there except fibro homes, and after a month or so I began to go stir-crazy. I felt stifled like I couldn't breathe, and I needed space, so I gave my notice and left. Andy helped me move back to the island again, in a little flat that was owned by Steve's mum. James started kindergarten at Brooklyn Public School on the mainland. He was so independent and brave. We caught the ferry together in the morning, and then he hopped on the school bus all by himself. One evening, I rang Francis from the public phone box outside the general store near our flat. He was coked off his head and told me that he didn't need anyone. I thought, good, and hung up on him and decided to keep away from him from then on. I met a mum who lived on the island, and she was an artist. She had two little boys who went to the same school as James, and she offered to mind James for me so that I could go back to work. I thought this was much better for James than being near me. So I spoke with Kate about working at the brothel in King's Cross. Men had used and abused me enough and my thinking was, well, instead of having sex for free, at least I would get paid for it. I began working there during the days, but it was a horrible dark place in one of the back alleys. I was way out of my depth and drank vodkas all day at the bar just to try and deal with the depravity of my surroundings. I didn't care about anything anymore except my little son and I asked one of the girls who worked there, Tammy, to inject me with heroin. This was the first time I had used the needle. I passed out for the next eight hours on the couch downstairs with my head on the shoulder of a regular customer, Thomas, who was a marathon runner. I was unconscious. No one except Kate knew where I was working because I lied to the few people in my life and told them I worked in a bar in the city. During the train trip back to the island, I rolled joints of hash and smoked them. No one ever said anything. I loved knitting during those long trips and made two jumpers, one for me and one for Francis. Then I called the water taxi to the island and walked to pick up James, and then we went home, straight to sleep. After three months of doing this, I spoke with Francis on the phone and he told me that Marley had asked him to move out. She had spoken with Kate and asked her if he was having an affair. Kate told her the truth and I felt ashamed. He moved out of his family home and in with his a friend of his, Jonathan, for the next six months. Into a semi and then into a semi by himself at Annandale in the inner city. When he told me what happened, I could feel the blood drain from my face. I rang Lucy and told her what happened, but her response surprised me. She seemed elated and told me to go for it. I told her that I couldn't do that and hung up. I didn't understand much about marriage, but I knew that no happiness could ever come from being the cause of someone else's pain and sadness. I knew that I could never marry Francis, and that had never been my plan. 
However, I didn't really have a plan. James and I caught the train to stay for a weekend at May and Steve's. They had moved to live and work on a pig farm, which was about six hours' drive out west of Sydney. There were no trains for our return trip to Sydney, so I lay down next to James on the seat on the platform, and we slept there until the train arrived early next morning. Then I decided to go to Brisbane to try and start a new life. But I I knew no one there and had no money. I got very homesick for Sydney, and after only one night there, James and I caught the train back again. After we returned, Francis told me he had gone looking for me in the bar where he thought I was working, and he said that he couldn't find me. He rang Kate and asked her where I was working, and she had told him the truth. One sunny afternoon after visiting Francis, he offered to drive us back to Brooklyn, and a friend of his, Pete, came along for the drive. Francis had told me that he met him when he came to live in Sydney. He told me that Pete was fond of him, and I wondered why he would want to hang around with him if that was the case. I thought that was very weird because Francis had always had women hanging around him. He had women friends that he socialised with. Myrna, a businesswoman who owned a shop in the Strand Arcade, and he would take her for rides on his motorbike. And Chris, a nurse who worked in the oncology ward at RPA Hospital. They were travelling up to Gosford with large garbage bags filled with very strong marijuana in the boot of the car. Pete sat next to Francis in the front seat and James and I were in the back seat and after a while I could smell the dope. It was so strong and I started freaking out because I was worried that if I could smell it then the cars that stopped near us could too. I felt so uneasy during the, the entire one hour trip to Brooklyn. I kept getting bad vibes from Pete and it all just felt very wrong. A few weeks after that Francis told me He had to get rid of Pete as a friend because he had wanted to become his boyfriend. Many years later, we found out that he died from AIDS. I moved off the island again and left our few possessions with Mum at Ermington. I decided to stay with Francis and Annandale, and at first I only used Annandale as a place to sleep. I asked my brother and his wife if they could look after James for three months because I needed a break, and he did too. I thought it would be lovely for James to experience life on the property and be near his little cousins too. They agreed, but asked me to pay $800 for his food and keep. And I did. We drove to West Wylong to drop little James off at the beginning of the April school holidays in 1984. Francis and I stayed overnight, and when I woke up on Sunday morning, I had a bladder infection. I had already had them about four times in the past and knew that I needed to get antibiotics quickly. There were no doctors nearby, so Francis drove me to West Wylong Hospital half an hour away. It was a tiny country hospital and the place seemed empty. We had to wait a couple of hours for the doctor to arrive. As soon as I had the antibiotics, we drove back, but after we returned, my brother Anthony was mumbling something about drugs and scoring and dealing. I told him that he was wrong and that we knew no one so far away from Sydney anyway. But he thought I was lying, and even though we had taken a little bit of heroin with us and snorted some that morning, I felt hurt by his accusations that he was that he would falsely that I would falsely concoct a story about having a bladder infection. After we got back to Sydney, I moved my clothes in with Francis at Annandale, and within a week he asked me if I had any money. I had saved a thousand dollars from working at the brothel, and he said, "Give it to me, I need it." I gave it to him straight away because I trusted Francis with my world.
He used it to pay for a drug deal. I kept working sporadically and caught gonorrhea and herpes and had to have a week off every time. I hated working as a prostitute. The men were disgusting and I hated having to check them for diseases. We were supposed to wipe them over with disinfectant, but I could never bring myself to do that. And it probably wouldn't have done anything anyway. When they were too smelly or if they thought we thought they had a disease, we would had, had to say no to them and bring them back downstairs to give them a refund. I was always too ashamed and embarrassed to do this. For most of my time there, I just ignored the clients and left them for other girls. I loved one of my clients, Thomas. He was in his 40s and was so sweet to me and let me stay at his place one night just so I could get away from the brothel. Francis hated me using the needle and threatened that if I ever used the needle again that he would tell me to leave. I really didn't care one way or another. I really didn't care what he said and straight away I went to try and get up in the toilet, which was separate from the house, out the back, in the little backyard, but it was too dark and I couldn't see. Francis and I snorted heroin only on weekends. I felt so comfortable when I was out of it. No pain, no emotions, no feelings, no nothing. One night I was home by myself watching a movie, which was about two young heroin addicts in Amsterdam. At the end of the movie, they both overdosed and died. It was a true story and I thought to myself, great way to check out. But I didn't die and kept waking up, vomiting and doing it all over again. After a month or so, Francis asked me to stop working and I was glad. He bought me a red muscle car, a V8 with two doors and huge fat wheels. I learned to drive and got my licence on my first attempt. But after four months, I missed James too much. And when Anthony and Krista came to Sydney, I drove to pick him up from Paddy's, Krista's mum's. Krista's mum, who lived in Balkan Hills. I loved having my little son living with me again, even though I still had no idea what I was doing. Francis reconnected with his daughters, Jane and Anne, who came to stay with us on weekends and school holidays. He had not seen them for six months. They were so soft and sweet to James and me, and I loved that James had his company his own age to play with. Francis had described in detail to me the verbal and physical abuse that he had inflicted on Marley and Jane to the point that I couldn't listen to him anymore and told him to stop. I didn't want to believe it and blocked it out of my mind. He told me he did it because he had never loved Marley. I never believed this and knew he was lying, but by then I was in too deep to leave him or find a way out. Francis knew a lot of drug dealers and users. Manny was a hardcore heroin addict who had served time in jail. He would walk around in the morning eating out of a bowl of cornflakes, eating out of his bowl of cornflakes with a loaded syringe hanging out of the vein in his arm so that he could inject small amounts at a time. He dealt in large quantities of heroin, so for the small amount that we needed, he would just pour some out of the ad's bag and Francis would give him $200 for it. I stopped using all other drugs. Francis hated pills and I didn't drink anymore. Occasionally I smoked joints because bongs made me cough too much. Francis hated bongs too. They were too rough on his throat and lungs and caused him to cough as well. As I ran the bath one evening, I went to climb in it, but it was an old-fashioned gas hot water heater, and I had forgotten to switch on the cold water tap as well, and the water from the tap hit my thigh and burnt my skin badly, but I didn't feel a thing. Heroin is such a powerful painkiller. The burn took ages to heal though, and I had a scar for many years after that. Francis sold a lot of cocaine, marijuana and hashish. One morning he came home from work with a shotgun. 
I asked him why he needed it and he said that he gave one of Mort's associates $2,000 worth of hash on credit and now the guy was refusing to pay for it. Francis told me the shotgun was only for psychological use to frighten him into paying up and it worked. Francis was paid in full within a week. Word spreads very quickly. Ricky was a big cocaine user and dealer. One day he told us that Mort had been caught at the airport in Tahiti with two kilograms of cocaine. We didn't even know that he had gone overseas. He hadn't let anyone know about his get-rich-quick scheme. Mort went over the first time and didn't get caught. I fell in love with a 16-year-old girl who lived with her parents in Tahiti. He was in his 30s, so he returned there a week after his first trip. He was very deluded. When the girl's parents found out about him, they called the police. He was sentenced to eight years jail in Papiti, the same place where Papillon had been incarcerated. He shook Francis up quite a bit, and he wrote to Mort once a week for the next eight years until he was released. I always hated cocaine and never used it, but Francis loved it. It makes you love yourself too much and be obnoxious, arrogant and aloof. Francis and I picked up James from school in the afternoons. One wet and rainy day, we walked out the door in just T-shirts and shorts and were out of it. We couldn't feel the cold. All the car windows were down and the wind and rain were coming in the car. We didn't notice and Francis did a U-turn on the six-lane road without looking. The oncoming traffic swerved all over the road and went to the other side of the road to avoid eating us. Francis and I just looked at each other and realised what should have happened. We were too out of it and were a bit blasé about it all. Francis's lease ran out and we moved to a new house in Haberfield. James started year one at the public school, which was only two blocks down our street. Jane and Anne went to Holy Cross Catholic School at Willara. They attended there during all of their school years and lived in a unit at Willara with Marley. Francis and Marley had brought it together and she was now paying it off by herself. She worked full-time in a dress shop. Francis told me that he gave Marley cash when she needed it. Francis said because they didn't have him living there anymore, he felt good that at least he had given them the security that comes from living in one home and attending one school until they finished their education. On Friday afternoons, we drove to Jane and Anne's school and picked them up so they could spend the weekends with us. They got to know James and they all played together. The girls were always very polite, well-mannered and never caused any trouble. The house we lived in was an old two-bedroom weatherboard with a sunroom where Jane and Anne slept. Dropping them back on Sunday evenings after dinner was very difficult in the beginning for both Francis and the girls. James got another ear infection and had to have tests at the audiology clinic. They told me he had to have another operation where they inserted the little tubes into his ears to help drain the fluid. The doctors told me he had lost a bit of his hearing. Francis and I had not used heroin for a couple of days and began to feel unwell. When James was being wheeled into the operating theatre for surgery, the doctor looked at me and asked me if I had the flu. He told me they cannot operate if there is anyone close to the patient who is sick. I assured him that I didn't, but he looked at me very suspiciously. It was the first time we had experienced physical ex- withdrawals from our youth, drug use, and it was not good. Francis told me we were junkies, but I became very indignant and insisted that I was not a junkie. To me, in my mind, junkies were people who sat in the gutter injecting anything. 
Francis picked us up after the operation, told me he felt very ill too. So then he drove straight to see the dealer. For the first time since we had met Nanny, he had nothing. So he tried to score elsewhere, and after we used $200 worth of heroin, he barely got rid of our withdrawals. We realised that thanks to Nanny and our own stupidity, now we both have very expensive addictions. Francis started to deal more to cover the cost. After James left for school in the mornings, it was my job to weigh the grass, roll it up in fours that I had sliced up and then put 200 rolls into plastic lunch bags. Francis and I went to the supermarket out of it and would put 20 boxes of foil and 2 litres of milk into the trolley. We joked that we were having a big barbecue. We were idiotic. To try and use less heroin, I smoked grass and Francis snorted cocaine and drank scotch. He sat up all night doing crossword puzzles and writing in journals. 